Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features Christian Wyman reading old and new work at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A poet, translator, editor, and essayist, Christian Wyman is the author of numerous books, including the poetry collections Once in the West, Every Riven Thing, and The Long Home, and the essay collections My Bright Abyss, Meditations of a Modern Believer, and Ambition and Survival, Becoming a Poet. He was the editor of Poetry Magazine for 10 years and is currently on faculty at the Yale Divinity School. Jane Swart introduced Christian at the 2016 festival. Jane is a professor of English at Calvin College, co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, and an accomplished poet herself. We talked a little bit about what makes Wyman's work so compelling. So Jane, where did I find you today? You found me in your own orange chair in your office. <laughs> Excellent. That's super convenient. I appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> Thanks for coming in to talk about Christian Wyman today. Of course. Um, you, of course, have, uh, he was at the 2016 festival. He's met the festival in the past as well. Um, and you've been reading his work for many years. Um, what first introduced, or what was the first kind of introduction to his work or what got you into him? Yeah, the first thing I read by him was um, his long poem from his first collection called The Long Home. Um, And I happened upon it just because I was looking for a longer poem to teach in a literature class. Um, And I had looked at a number of kind of interconnected poems by some other writers. Um, One collection that was really beautiful called Ultima Thule. Um, But I wanted something that had kind of more of a narrative arc. Um, And I read it and I just loved it. Um, Partly because of the conceit of the poem. So it's all told in his grandmother's voice. Um, And so there's this kind of interesting ventriloquism going on. Um, But it's also, I mean, you can feel his fondness for her and um, his compassion for what she had lost and found and her sense of place throughout the whole thing. Um, And in that poem too, there's this faith, but it's a faith that he would tell you he hadn't assented to himself mm-hmm. yet. Um, so I find that, you know, in retrospect, a really interesting piece. Well, speaking of faith, at the beginning of this recording that we're going to listen to, he will read several of his own poems, but he starts talking about Brett Foster, mm-hmm. who's a poet who had uh, most recently been teaching at Wheaton College, um, who died just not long before the 2016 festival. Mm-hmm. Wyman and Foster had met at Stanford, I think, maybe they're both Stegners at the same time, and he talks about the joy he felt when meeting Brett and how he wasn't sure what that was but later came to understand it as related to his own Christian faith Mm -hmm. and that they all kind of conceived of themselves as radicals in various ways and it took them a while to realize that Brett was the true radical. so that's interesting. He's he's often been, I think, kind of compelled by faith in various people's lives. They're examples of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, that's you know, part of both of them as poets is they both 
have such generosity to other poets. Um, so even for Chris to do at the beginning that sort of moment of tribute to Brett, he said yes without hesitating. And you know, often when he reads, he'll read another poet's work. Which he does um, in the session as well. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But also, I think both of them have in common this sort of understanding of joy as both irrepressible mm. um, and also difficult. Mm. Um, sometimes difficult to come by and sometimes even difficult to know what to do with, I think. In this um, session in particular, I think that um, one of the things you, you hear in the poems that he reads is this kind of resistance at times. Uh, and, and one of the things he seems to be resisting at times is the idea that joy is dead or that, or that um, that's just not a, a live thing in the world anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and you, see, you see this resistance in various ways throughout his work, maybe resistance to the notion that death is the end, or you know, as, as he's dealt with his own mortality and his own cancer, um, and I wonder if that's something you've seen in his work, kind of consistently throughout. He wants to complicate things. It seems like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think both in the direction you're talking about, right, to take a sort of um, cynical stance and show where the kind of gaps in it are. I think there's some poems where he tries to begin. Um, in a more dismissive place and can't quite sustain it, right? Mm, Which is really beautiful. Um, but at the same time, I think he's also really um, quick not to want sort of the pat or trite version of religious consolation um, that sometimes people respond to suffering with. And I think both of those things play out um, in the poetry and in the reading as well. Yeah, for sure. And um, something too that, that becomes um, more, that you can hear in the reading is his attention to cadence. Mm -hmm. um, it, so, I mean, that happens if you're reading something, you know, your, your access to the cadence is a little bit mitigated via what you're imagining. Yeah. But hearing him read his own work, you really hear how he imagines the sounding, and how important that is, how important the cadence is to the work. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think that kind of attentiveness, right, not only to sound, but to visual images and to the sort of quirks of other people's ways of being in the world mm -hmm. is something that comes through in his poetry throughout, right? There's this yeah. real attentiveness there. Sure. Speaking of attentiveness and quirks, though, um, the, the, you can hear in the recording, there's a couple times where he's like missing his book or something. And I know you were hosting him while he was here. You introduced the session and then yeah. um, we're hosting him. And remind me what happened. You had to like go kind of run a couple different times to grab yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. So I finished introducing Chris um, uh -huh. and he very graciously said, thank you so much. And then added, but I have forgotten my book. <laughs> and I was like, okay. He's like, it's in the green room. So I just said, all right, stall a minute and I'll go get it for you. So that was no big deal. Sure. I went, it was right on the top. Uh -huh. I handed it to him um, from out of his briefcase. Mm -hmm. And then I went to go sit down in the audience of mm -hmm. the FAC, which, yeah. you know, is at a different level. Uh -huh, and, sure. Um, like down so, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And then as he was getting toward the end of the reading, he was going to do some new work mm -hmm. um, and realized that he did not have the folder <laughs> in which he had stored this new work. Uh -huh. um, and so he said that from stage and said, oh, well, perhaps I'll just try to do it from memory. <laughs> um, and he does have this incredible memory, yeah. right? He has all these poems by heart, uh, I think, yeah. in the deepest sense of that phrase. Mm. Um, but I heard that and I was like, well, it's got to be in his briefcase. <laughs> You're like, I know where that's at. <laughs> so I zoomed oh, out yeah. from the FAC and around the back and into the green room. And then when there was this pause um, before he started doing the poem, I brought the briefcase in sort of sheepishly and just set it next to him. And everyone clapped. And so I was just like, okay. And I gave the audience the big thumbs yeah. up and ran away as fast as I could. Um, but it was funny because in the intro, I had made this big point that nothing is lost um, on Wyman, pointing to this kind of attentiveness and so on. And he quipped that his wife would disagree with that. And uh -huh. following the session, I, I think that she is absolutely right. So um, yeah. 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 Here's a shout out to another great poet, Danielle Chapman, Wyman's mm -hmm. wife, yeah. um, and her right sense of her, her own attention to detail to lose things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for popping into my office today to talk about Christian Wyman. Of course. My pleasure. <laughs> and now, Christian Wyman at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. I knew Brett Foster um, from years ago. We were in, in San Francisco together at Stanford University when we both had Stegner Fellows, and maybe I was teaching at the time, I can't remember, but um, Brett was a little younger, or maybe he was the same age, I can't remember, but um, Brett was a Christian, and as you know, those of you who know Brett, uh, and at Stanford University 20 years ago, this was an odd thing to be. Uh, we all fancied ourselves radicals in some way, but uh, it's taken me years to realize that Brett was the true radical among us, and also to realize the kind of jolt that I had upon meeting him. Uh, I, it was Christianity, I can see in retrospect, and the extent to which he lived what he believed, but it was also the way in which his experience seemed to move through him without getting snagged on things. And he had a kind of joy that was constant and an ability to feel joy, which you realize when you meet someone like that is a rare quality. He was writing right up until his death. This poem is called Tongue is the Pen. It's got a little epigraph, Isaiah 40, simply says Isaiah 43. Behold, I will make all things new, is well, I assume what he's referring to. I am making all things new, or am trying to, being so surprised to be one of those guys who may be dying early. This is yet one more earthen declaration uttered through a better prophet's more durable mouth with heart astir. It's not oath-taking that I'm concerned with here for what that's worth. Instead, just a cry from the very blood, a good, sound imprecation to give the sickness and the shivering meaning. Former things have not been forgotten, 
but they have forgotten me. The dear, the sweet, the blessed past, writes Bassani. Tongue is the pin. Donning some blanket of decorousness is not the prophet's profession, not ever. Not that I've tasted the prophet's honey or fire. I'm just a shocked, confounded fellow who's standing here pumping the bellows of his mellifluous sorrow. Yet sorrow's the thing for all prophets. Make a way in the wilderness, streaming your home studio-made recordings from a personal wasteland. These are my thoughts. I can't manage the serious beard. My sackcloth is the flannel shirt I'm wearing, but the short-circuited months have whitened my hair, and it's not for nothing that Jeffrey calls me with affectionate mockery, the silver fox. It's a prerequisite, finally, being a marginal prophet, but a severe attention to envisioned tomorrows must be present, too, must be perceived as possible, audible, or followable. There's a hypothetically bright future for everything, each wounded creature that is bitten or bites. And speaking of things overheard, you heard right. If I have to go out, I am going to go out singing. It's Brett Foster. I'd also like to remember, Rot, thank you, I forgot a book, so you went to get it. Uh, uh, Roger Lundeen, who also taught at Wheaton College and was a friend of mine and died the exact same week. It was a tragedy for Wheaton College. The author of several books, uh, two of which are really wonderful, called Believing Again, which is fantastic, and another one called The Art of Emily Dickinson. I may be getting that title slightly wrong, but they're both really, really wonderful. Years ago, I lived in Prague, and um, at the time, Prague was a very different city from what it is now, you could get an apartment there if you were a, a, a foreigner for $35 a month. And I lived with someone at the time, if you paid in American dollars, I lived with someone at the time and we lived on the uh, seventh floor of one of those grim gray apartment complexes that surround so many Eastern European cities, Paniloks, they're called in Czech. And one day when I was sitting at the kitchen table studying Czech, and do not come up to me and speak Czech, please. <laughs> I've, had, I've had that happen. <laughs> I was sitting at the kitchen table studying Czech, and my girlfriend was in the bath, and, and uh, a falcon, a kestrel, landed just three feet from me uh, behind the pane of glass, the window pane, on the other side. It took me 10 years to uh, write the poem, but eventually I got something out of it, and this poem is called Pashtolka, which in Czech means falcon or kestrel. When I was learning words and you were in the bath, there was a flurry of small birds, and in the aftermath of all that panicked flight, as if the red dusk willed a concentration of its light, a falcon on the sill. It scanned the orchard's bowers, then pain by pain it eyed the stories facing ours, but never looked inside. I called you in to see, 
And when you steamed the room and naked next to me stood dripping as a bloom of blood formed in your cheek and slowly seemed to melt, I could almost speak the love I almost felt. Wish for something, you said. A shiver pricked your spine. The falcon turned its head and locked its eyes on mine. And for a long moment, I'm still in. I wished and wished and wished the moment would not end. And just like that, it vanished. It's a poem about not being able to inhabit the life that you've been given. It's a sort of celebration of life and the earth by someone whose mind is tuned only to elegies. Uh, it's a curious fact of being a writer that you can often feel most intensely the life that you've failed to feel. Uh, <laughs> Henry James, I mean, Jane alluded to Henry James in her introduction. She said he is, uh, that she, of, of me, she said someone of whom nothing is lost. I'm sure my wife's in the audience. She'll find that hilarious. So, um, but the great irony is that Henry James was always writing about the life that he, he felt like he stood at the edge of. Uh, the Beast in the Jungle is the great example of a love that the guy cannot recognize until it's too late. I grew up in West Texas, and um, I'm going to read a poem that's set there. Some people ask me, how is it that a poet could come from West Texas, but I've never seen it. Uh, it's, never, it's never seemed to me all that strange, actually. Um, I grew up without books, but I had plenty of uh, useful experience to draw upon. And one of them was when I was in my teens, late teens, 16 in this poem, uh, I worked in the oil fields like everyone I knew, basically, and we did construction of the oil fields. And... Um, at one point, we were paving roadways to tank batteries, or maybe the area around tank batteries, I don't remember, but um, my job for a while was to drive the steamroller, and it wasn't a little steamroller, it was a huge steamroller, one of those great big ones, so that you're way up in the air, and, and you know, you're 16 years old, this is cool, um, but the coolest thing uh, was to be out there in the blasting hot West Texas summer day on that steamroller and to see a snake. Think about it. <laughs> this poem is called Native. It's about the ambivalent relationship that many of us have to the places that we're from. We love them and we hate them. At 16, 16 miles from Abilene, Trent to be exact, hell bent on being not this, not that, I drove a steamroller smack dab over a fat black snake. Up surged a cheer from men so cheerless, cheers were grunts, squints, whisker twitches. It would take a lunatic acuity to see. I saw the fat black snake smashed flat as the asphalt, flattening under all ten tons of me, flat as the landscape I could see no end of. Flat as the affect of distant killing vigilance, it would take a native to know was love. The poem is about the way love can force itself into such austere forms that 
can be hard to recognize as love. Uh, I'm interested, I have little kids, and I'm interested in all the, you go to the kid, events for kids these days, and there are a lot of men there. When I was growing up, fathers were never at any events at all, and I did not know one person who had a relationship, close relationship with his father. Daughters could, but I didn't know any sons when I was growing up. And, and, and so I'm often moved by poems that manage to show love expressed in forms that might not be perceivable from the outside. Robert Hayden, great African-American poet, Robert Hayden is a great example of those winter Sundays, which ends, his father was taking, he, he, he realizes his father was always polishing his shoes and getting the fire blazing in the house, and no one ever thanked him. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Love's austere and lonely offices. Very beautiful poem. This poem, several of the poems I've written in recent years, memorialize figures from my time as a child, and this one does. It's called Believing Green. I'm sort of obsessed with what it means to be a Christian in terms of projecting your life forward. This poem is uh, one answer. Solitary as a mast on a mountain top, an ocean of knowing long withdrawn, she diddied the days, grew fluent in cat, felt she said, each seed surreptitiously split the adamantine dark, believing green. It was the town's torpor washed me to her door. It was the itch existence stranded me on that shore of big-lipped shells pinked with altogether other suns, random wall blobs impastoed with jewels and jowls sometimes a citizen seemed to peek through. Inward and inward, all the space and spice of her edible heavens. Oh, to feel again within the molded dough, wet, pottery, buttery cosmos, brain that has not cooled, to bring to being an instant sculpture garden, five flash-lit jackrabbits locked in black. From her I learned the earthworm's exemplary open-mindedness, its engine of discriminate shit. From her I learned all the nuances of neverness that linked the gladiola to God. How gone she must be, graveless maybe, who felt the best death would be for friends to eat you, whose last name I never even knew, dirt rich, mouse proud lady who rubied me into a life so starred and laughtered there was no need for after. This poem is in opposition to that poem, Pashtolka, with, with which I began. It's a little poem for my wife called 4D. The image in the poem is very short, tiny, probably can't see, but tiny. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a young tree, I actually saw this, a young tree uh, had, cr had cracked partly and caught in the crook of another tree 
and stayed alive that way. It didn't die. It was being held up, and so it didn't, it didn't die. For D. Groans going all the way up a young tree, half cracked and caught in the crook of another. Pause. All around the hill-ringed, heavened pond, leaves shush themselves like an audience. A cellular stillness, as of some huge attention bearing down. May I hold your hand? A clutch of mayflies banqueting on oblivion writhes above the water like visible light. I don't take much comfort from the notion of heaven. Uh, that poem, Believing Green, is about a woman who lived her life so utterly that she felt no need to project herself beyond it. And I understand that. I feel that when people, when I hear people talk about heaven, what they usually mean is a projection of the self. Uh, it seems to me that as I understand Christianity, it should be a scouring of these existences, of this existence in some way. And ought to free us from just such things rather than cause us to project ourselves ad infinitum. That's what the atheists object to, that we are not facing death when we speak of heaven, and I think they have a point. And yet, we have these moments in our lives that seem to project us beyond ourselves. We have these moments of banqueting on oblivion, as that poem just says, moments when maybe oblivion seems like it just whispers in your ear as if it has an agency, as if maybe it's not oblivion, as if it's something else. We have these moments which, if we are going to live honest lives afterwards, we have to be true to, we have to in some ways live up to. Abraham Joshua Heschel says that faith is mostly faithfulness to the times when we had faith, which is a great way of thinking of it. We all have these moments in our lives when we are absolutely sure of the meaning of existence or actually freed from seeking the meaning of existence. And then we all fall away from them after and wonder how in the world were we that person who could perceive that. Heschel says that to have faith is to remain true to that person that you were. So true to that person who was in that poem for D, who could feel that love and that light becoming the same thing. So it's a complicated notion. Uh, I don't think you can fill heaven with any content but I don't think you can jettison the concept. Here's a poem that I wrote when I was wrestling with these things. Jane mentioned it in her introduction. It's set on the L in Chicago, where my wife and I lived for a decade. I was editing Poetry Magazine at the time, and the stop that I would get off on in the, in the train is Grand, downtown. And the, the poem is called, My Stop is Grand. <laughs> um, the poem mentions another stop, Clark and Division. Uh, let's see if you need to know anything else. It can be difficult to hear a poem for the first time, so I'm going to tell you exactly the scene. It is a bunch of people crammed onto a commuter train, 
miserable and sweaty and angry to be crammed together, or at least I was projecting that upon all of them. <laughs> and, and suddenly there was this fan tail of sparks like you'll see sometimes from train tracks, but this one was truly extraordinary. And everyone, again in my mind, turned to look at the same time and saw one thing, and then gone back to the day, the miserable day, headed towards a gray day in, in the middle of winter in Chicago. Um, and this poem is about what survives. What does it mean to think of your own death if you are facing it? And actually, when I wrote this poem, I was quite sick. I wrote it all one night when I felt uh, the sickness unto death in both senses. Kierkegaard's phrase, the anxiety of meaninglessness and, and literal. My stop is grand. I have no illusion, some fusion of force and form will save me. Bewilderment of bone light ungrave me. As when the L shooting through a hell of ratty alleys where nothing thrives but soot and the rat-like lives that have learned to eat it screechingly peacocked a grace of sparks so far out and above the fast curve that jostled and fastened us into a single shock of, I will not call it love, but at least some brief and no doubt illusionary belief that in one surge of brain we were all seeing one thing, alone, unearned loveliness struck from an iron pain. Already it was gone. Already it was bone. The gray sky and the encroaching skyline pecked so clean by raptor night I shuddered at the cold gleam we hurtled toward like some insentient herd plunging underground at Clark and Division. And yet all that day I had a kind of vision that's never gone completely away of immense, clear-paned towers and endlessly expendable hours through which I walked teeming human streets, filled with a shine that was most intimately me and not mine. I take that at the end, I would not have thought this writing it, but I take that at the end, filled with the shine that was most intimately me and not mine to be an image of Jesus. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, goes the poem, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I've been confused in my life sometimes by given access to poems like this, and I think this happens to a lot of artists, given access to poems that seem to you to give the meaning of existence or again to, to free you from the need to assign a meaning to existence, and then afterwards being left in the dull, cold existence uh, of being uninspired um, and waiting for the next thing to come. Uh, I don't write many poems. Uh, and it seems to me it was a long time between them again. My wife's clutching her head and saying, oh my God, he writes way too many poems. <laughs> um, 
I've been confused in my life by having that rapture of experience. Oh, for the one rapture. I want the one rapture of an inspiration, says Hopkins. Um, and then having all those fireless times in between, but also sometimes having an inspiration that seems to lead you to repudiate the very thing that you were praising before. Uh, and I've found that quite confusing. Uh, I've had, in fact, last time I was at this conference, I think it was here, someone asked me if I was an atheist Christian. And because some of the poems were so directly against other poems that I read. And it took me a long time to come to terms with it. I was pretty confused by it because if you're an artist, you do come to trust what's revealed to you in your art more than anything else. And, and, uh, and so if, if your art is telling you that there is no God and you are bereft and pursuing God is a waste of your time, well, that's a problem. Um, I was helped greatly by reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer at one point and his letters from papers from prison and his work in general. And at the end of letters and papers from prison, he has that famous, famous lines where he says, we, must, we are called to live in a world without God, uh, before God and without, with God we stand without God. Before God and with God we stand without God. So that paradox, we are called to live in a world without God. Uh, he was in prison, of course, fearful for his life and, and uh, heroic to the end. And it began to seem to me that the same energy that compelled me in the earlier poems that led me to praise God was the very same energy that might lead me to sing of godlessness in other times. Um, and I began to think that it might be that some people, maybe all people, are in some way called to unbelief at certain times in their life, call to it in order that your faith can extend itself, in order that faith can transform, in order that faith can find new forms. When I was going through these thoughts, I was led to the poet of Ossip Edelstein. I'm going to read a few of these. Uh, my wife was reading Mandelstam, and she was really interested in it. And when you're young, you read for predatory reasons. You read because you want to, uh, uh, everything you read is because what you're, you're asking, what do I gain from this? You know, what can I gain? What can I steal? What can I get? Um, and even if it's, if it's too good, it bothers you when you're young. You're like irritated. But... As you get older, I found that you read for, your reasons become sympathetic. Uh, you read to make contact with people around you, make contact with the dead. Uh, it's, a, it's a very different way of reading and much more productive. Uh, perhaps not as critically astute, but much more productive. Um, Mandelstam uh, was a great modernist poet. He was Jewish. He converted to Christianity in his uh, late teens, early 20s, but it's uh, not clear what that meant to him because he, lots of people who were Jewish had to convert to Christianity because you couldn't get a job translating or you couldn't go to university uh, and he wanted to do both. Um, however, he did convert to Finnish Methodism, which is odd. Uh, very specific and not, and not exactly safe. It wasn't the safe route for him to go. And uh, and he also wrote uh, several poems uh, that took Christianity quite seriously. 
Um, here's a little bit from an early poem called Tristia, one of his famous poems. I'm not going to read much of it, but it's interesting because it shows the nature of his ambition. Modernism was a time in which, uh, well, the famous phrase is light writes white, which everyone seemed to, seemed to repeat, um, meaning that uh, if everything is light in your life, if all you have is happiness, well, then you've got a blank page. That page will, will always stay blank because what you need is some sort of tension or contradiction or suffering to turn your energy into art. Light writes white. Well, Mandelstam resisted that. I love the calm and custom of quick fingers weaving, the shuttle's buzz and hum, the spindle's bees. And look, arriving or leaving, spun from down, some barefoot delia barely touching the ground. What rot has reached the very root of us that we should have no language for our praise? What is, was. What was, will be again. And our whole lives' sweetness lies in these meetings that we recognize. These are wonderful lines and wise, I think, in the, way that, in the way that they describe the way that our lives are raveled together. And uh, these moments that we think take us completely out of our lives must be in some way integrated into the rest of our lives for them to have their full meaning. And also that we should have no language for our praise. So Mandelstam and his wife, Nadezhda, were hounded by Stalin. Stalin was driven crazy by Mandelstam. And you get the sense when you read the life of Mandelstam and read the history that it was not simply what Mandelstam did, which was troubling enough, I'll get to that, but um, it was something of the pure lyric spirit that Mandelstam represented that, that bothered Stalin. Uh, and he was... Mandelstam and his wife were forever having to move, uh, even before things became terrible for them, forever having to move from Moscow to Petersburg to here to there to there, out in the hinterlands and back and forth. And this poem, they never knew when things were going to be taken away. And this poem is set in Moscow when they had a, an apartment for a brief period of time. This is he and, him and his wife sitting in a kitchen. Come, love, let us sit together in the cramped kitchen, breathing kerosene. There's fuel enough to forget the weather. The knife is ours and the bread is clean. Come, love, let us play the game of what to take and when to run, of come with me and come what may, and holding hands to hold off the sun. She wrote a beautiful book called Hope Against Hope, which chronicles their last years and all the experiences that they went through. It's what really made Mandelstam famous in the West. Mandelstam is amazing for the range of his voice. He can do all kinds of things. He can be very intensely lyrical. He could write narrative poems, and he could be very funny. And one of the strangest things about him is he could be very funny right at the edge of death. This poem is called Herzoverse. Actually, I gave it that title. It doesn't really have it. Um, this, it, seemed to, it seemed to demand it. Um, uh, this is when they lived different apartment they had a guy who played the violin next to them 
um, and sort of drove him crazy with his violin. Once upon a time, there lived a Jew, a musical Jew, I tell you, named Alexander Herzowitz, sweet as sherbet, his Schubert, a jewel, I tell you, a musical jewel, dawn to dusk, day after day, the same damn jewel in the same damn way. <laughs> what is this, Salamander Slivovitz? Insanity's Sonata? And what are you, a holy fool? Scherzovitz, enough of it. Let the dulce de leche maiden swoon Schubert through her skin. Let the children slay Allegro, this swiftness and darkness and star-sparkled snow. We're not afraid to die, you and I, to flutter down like a dove, a musical dove, to hang on the black hook like a coat and glove, a worn, one-armed coat and a tattered, three-fingered glove. Oh, maestro, Alexander Herzovitz, whose hands and heart are blown to bits. What in you pins you there, my lonely mister, heaven's busker, playing your sad, your same, your only air? Really turns it, turns that knife at the end. He gets you early on with the humor and... Sort of the jaunty spirit of the poem, and then... This is the last poem that Mandelstam wrote, or he actually wrote three poems on the last day that we have poems from him. I like to believe this is the last poem. Um, he was wandering the streets of a town called Voronezh, and, and uh, saying, composing these poems like William Wordsworth in his head, uh, not on paper. Uh, partly because that's simply the way that he composed them, and partly because it was too dangerous to write things down at the time. And so he would go home at night and tell them to his wife and, or his friends, and then they would remember them, and, and that's how the poems got passed down. Uh, you can imagine the textual difficulties that has caused. But, uh, this poem is called, And I Was Alive, and he knew that his life was almost over. Manostam was last seen picking through a garbage dump in a trash heap, picking through a garbage dump uh, 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 on his way, at a transit camp, on his way to outer Siberia. Um, I mean, one of the best poets of the 20th century. One of the greatest minds of the 20th century. I mean, prose, translations, poetry, really a great mind. Picking through a garbage dump for food. And before that, he writes this poem. I sometimes think that every life is arrowing towards some conclusion that you're meant, we're meant to be. It's not necessarily a work of art. For a few of us, it will be a work of art. But some very particular act or word or gesture or something that could come only from us uh, and seems demanded by God. Imagine this being your last gesture. And I was alive in the blizzard of the blossoming pear. Myself I stood in the storm of the bird cherry tree. It was all leaf life and star shower, unerring, self-shattering power, and it was all aimed at me. What is this dire delight, flowering, fleeing, always earth? 
What is being? What is truth? Blossoms rupture and rapture the air, all hover and hammer, time intensified and time intolerable sweetness, raveling rot. It is now. It is not. Amazing poet, Joseph Mandelstam. I'm going to end with four short poems. Oh, actually, it looks like I forgot those poems too. Nice. Um, I might be able to do them. I could try them. I could try it. Uh, there are, these are two new poems. One is, uh, this is a real challenge. If I mess up, I mess up. All right? I don't have them. I thought about this right in the, in the green room that I was going to read a couple of new poems. Um, suddenly I'm nervous. Um, <laughs> this is a poem ending with a sentence from Jacques Maritain, a great Catholic uh, philosopher, theologian, uh, wrote a lot about art and creative intuition. Um, we often think of uh, certain perfections leading us to think of God, of coherences that we see. And I think actually it's often what is missing that makes us uh, think of God or feel God's presence. Um, Marilyn Robinson has a wonderful passage in Housekeeping where, very famous passage where she talks about, it's late in that book and the, the girl has wondered out uh, away from her aunt and said, and, and said uh, um, imagine a Carthage sown with salt and all the sowers gone and the seed laid however long in the earth till there arose in vegetable profusion a garden of leaves and trees of rhyme and brine. What flowering would there be in such a garden? And she goes on to say, uh, when do we know anything so utterly as when we lack it? Here again is a foreshadowing, the world will be made whole. It's a very, very beautiful passage. If you don't know it, find that book, Housekeeping. Um, but it's an example of a kind of absence or destitution. Oh, now I have it. You're, you're taking me. In. <laughs> it's, a, it's an example of a kind of absence or destitution leading to a perception of God. And that's what this is. All that introduction to this tiny little poem. It's uh, six lines. <clears throat> um, it begins with a... Uh, it's easier to tell if you have the poem in front of you. But it, it, it begins with an image of, a, of leaves. Ends with Jacques Maritain. It was the flash of black among the yellow billion. It was the green chink on the chapel sphere. It was some rust or recalcitrance in us by which we were, by the grace of pain, more here. It was you, me, fall and fallen light. It was that kind of imperfection through which infinity wounds the finite. I've always been, I remember walking along the lake by, in Chicago once and being struck by what life must be under what seems like a completely dead thing because, you know, that lake freezes in the winter. And this poem came years later. 
Good Lord, the light. Good morning, misery. Goodbye, belief. Good Lord, the light cutting across the lake so long gone to ice. There is an under, always, through which things still move, breathe, and have their being. Quick colds and crimsons no one needs see to see. Good night, knowledge. Goodbye, beyond. Good God, the winter. One must wonder one's own soul to be. In the last poems I'll read, a few years ago, when my daughters were two years old, we took a summer and went to Seattle and uh, it was the first break that I had had from Poetry Magazine in 10 years, and uh, I had also just had a bone marrow transplant, which I do not recommend if you were looking for some galvanizing ex artistic experience. Uh, um, but it, we had this summer, my wife and I and our daughters, and, and it was glorious. You know, it was a golden summer, remains that in memory. And in the mornings we would work and the, the girls would go off to a little daycare, a wonderful little daycare. Then we'd usually come together in the afternoons and go to explore the city somewhere and do something. And we had the same little ritual that we, uh, then that we do now. I would read to the girls and tuck them in. And before my wife took over and did the really hard work and getting them to sleep. And, um, and I would kiss each of them and say, you know, I love you, Eliza, I love you, Fiona, and, and they would say it back to me, and that would be that. And one night, I kissed little Fiona, and she's got dark hair, dark eyes, complete opposite of me and my wife, and, and uh, this little two-year-old says nothing, and, and uh, I didn't know what to do. And suddenly, the schedule was changed, the ritual was broken, and I said, well, do you love me too, Fiona? And, and, uh, and she waited a minute and put her finger right there, and she said, no, Daddy, I don't. <laughs> and again, I didn't know what to do, and I, I said, well, I, I bet you do, Fiona. And <laughs> Silence. Silence. <laughs> so then I was standing, getting ready to stand up, and you know, she's two years old, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I, I said, well, I love you, sweetie, I'll, I'll see you in the morning, and I went to stand up and she put her little hand on my arm and she says, I will love you in the summertime, Daddy. Daddy, I will love you in the summertime. And I tell people this story and, and, I, and some of them think it's heartbreaking and I was so proud. And I thought, I will love you in the summertime. It's, a, it's such a piercing, poetic thing to say. So, A little two-year-old, it was all I could do just to say, brilliant, that's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. So that eventually worked its way into this poem, those lines, and, which I wrote uh, a while later. Um, and the poem concerns what, what it means to witness and what it means to pray, uh, what a prayer looks like. Uh, I wrote an essay about this using that anecdote, actually, and about how you teach your children to pray and how sometimes you don't need to. Uh, they need to teach you. 
this is, and the poem begins with uh, um, the way in which we see the, the, the word of God in nature. Witness, typically cryptic. God said three weasels, slipping electric over the rocks, one current conducting them up the tree by the river in the woods of the country into which I walked away and away and away. And a moon-blued cloud-strewn night sky like an x-ray with here a mass and there a mass and everywhere a mass. And to the tune of a two-year-old storm of atoms, elliptically, electrically alive, I will love you in the summertime, Daddy. I will love you in the summertime. Once in the West, I lay down dying to see something other than the dying stars, so singularly clear, so unassailably there. They made me reach for something other. I said, I will not bow down again to the numinous ruins. I said, I will not violate my silence with prayer. I said, Lord, Lord, in the speechless way of things that bear years and hard weather and witness. Let me end with the last poem in this book. Which is also to my wife. Gone for the day, she is the day. It has breaks in it, which I'll just pause between them. Dawn is a dog's yawn, space in bed where a body should be, a nectared yard, night surviving in wires through which what voices? What needs already move, and the mind nibbling, nibbling at nothingness like a mouse at cheese? Spring. Sometimes one has the sense that to say the name God is a great betrayal. But whether one is betraying God, language, or oneself is harder to say. Gone for the day, she is the day. Opening in and around me like flowers she planted in our yard. Christ, not flowers. Gone for the day, she is the day, razoring in with the Serbian roofers. And 10 o'clock, tapped exactly by the one bad wheel of the tortilla cart. And the newborn's noonday anguish eased and the ohm, the mind, makes of traffic, and the bite of reality that brings it back, and the late afternoon afterlight in which a much-loved dog lies like a piece of precocious darkness, lifting his ears at threats, treats, comings, goings. To love is to feel your death given to you like a sentence, to meet the judge's eyes as if there were a judge, as if he had eyes, and love. Thank you all very much.
Many thanks to Jane Zwart. Learn more about the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing at ccfw.calvin.edu. Thanks also to Christian Wyman. A new collection of his poems spanning his career so far is out now titled, The Hammer is the Prayer. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes John Brown, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, Deb Reenstra, Amanda Smart, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you are especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.